0: Today's scripture is from John chapter 12, verses 20 through 33. Now, among those who went up to worship at the festival were some Greeks. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and he said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Whoever serves me, the Father will honor. Now my soul is troubled, and what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it is for this reason that I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd standing there heard it and said that it was thunder. Others said, An angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered this voice has come for your sake not for mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out and I when I am lifted from this from the earth will draw all people to myself. He said this to indicate the kind of death he was to die. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be
1: to God. God. Why did Jesus have to die? That's a question that I, uh, I asked myself growing up in the church um, often, because it, it seemed as though if we had this great God, this God who is capable of doing anything her wildest, imagine, her wildest imagination could ever conceive of, this God who, who is able, this God who is all-powerful, all-knowing. Wouldn't there be another way for salvation? Why did Jesus have to die? Did Jesus have to die? That became the second question. Could there have been another way that God could have brought salvation to humanity? Now, we we know that uh, as we have considered the theology that's leading up to Easter Sunday and also Good Friday, that Jesus died on the cross for the salvation uh, of all people, for the redemption of our sin, for new life. But couldn't there have been another way? Couldn't there have been some other possibility that we could have witnessed? Is there a realm of possibility in which Jesus could have kept on living, could have kept spreading the gospel across the entire globe? I mean, this is, after all, as we believe, the Son of God. Perhaps Jesus could have continued on living for the next 2,000 years and we could go and hang out with Jesus now. Okay, yes, I was, you know, like 13, 14 years old, whenever I started thinking about this, and it seemed like really nice in my head, but why did Jesus have to die? Why did that have to be the process? Jesus' own disciples contended with this question. You might recall um, in, in one of our previous messages, Peter, whenever Jesus says that he that Jesus whenever Jesus says that he's going to have to be crucified, Peter takes him aside and says, No, you don't have to do that. Don't do that, in fact. Please. Jesus' own disciples didn't want this to happen. So could there have been another way? And it took a long time for me to actually rationalize out some kind of answer to this question. Why did Jesus have to die? The answer lies in the natural order of things all around us. New life and sustained life is only possible through death. It sounds kind of dark, but let's go a little bit deeper into this. At, uh, after, after we dismiss at 11 o'clock and you have like your whole day ahead of you, what are you going to go do or between the hours of like 11 and 1 today? Like, I guess like most people eat yes you're going to eat and i imagine if if you're a regular human being and you're going to eat then you're going to eat food from whence comes food if not from death we start with you know if you're if you're an omnivore and you eat all things uh if you're going to go like have hot dogs and hamburgers after this well said hot dog and hamburger came from some animal that once was and now is not, and it is by the death of that animal that we are able to sustain our life in consuming that food. If you are solely vegetarian or vegan, the the same thing is still true. In order to consume that salad that you are going to eat, the lettuce had to die. It could not continue its life if we were to ingest it and take it on as our food. Let's take this into a more cosmic level now. If uh, if you're a a fan of astronomy like me, and I really am a fan of astronomy, I love uh, thinking about the cosmos and everything, the only way that a solar system can come into being is after the death of a star. And after a star explodes, sometimes in a a glorious fashion, it sends out uh, the... uh, Particles, atoms in, in many different forms that end up going through their half-life and decaying and becoming other types of atoms, and eventually those things all congeal together and come together around this new gravitational center and, and begin to form these rocks that are really, really hot that eventually cool and form planets, and this is how our solar system came into to be. A star exploded and gave way to new life new life is only possible through death. Jesus, in fact, brings up this very uh, conversation as uh, as he starts talking about the seed. He says in verse 24, very truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. We have before us, a gorgeous arrangement of flowers, some hydrangeas, some roses, some greenery in here, I won't pretend to know all of them, but it is a beautiful arrangement of flowers, yes, and we we look upon this and consider, this didn't just appear into being, yes, there was a florist who made this arrangement and put it into this pretty vase brought it up here. But additionally, the very life of the flowers did not just come into being. If you're a gardener out there, if you've got a green thumb, where do flowers come from? Seeds. Yes, I heard it out there. Yes, you have to plant it. And and perhaps you remember from your own science textbooks or biology textbooks, I don't know, maybe you took like some form of botany class or something and got to see the pictures of what happens whenever a seed goes into the ground plant the seed into the soil, and there's water, and there's nitrogen, and all of these nutrients that come into the seed, and all of a sudden the seed splits, it like cracks, and a root shoots down. Maybe not that quickly, but that's what ends up happening. It splits, and the root comes down, and then it splits again, and a sprout comes up and breaks through the soil. The seed is not really much of a seed anymore. As Jesus says, unless a single grain of wheat goes into the earth and dies... It remains just a single grain of wheat, but if it dies, it bears much fruit, and then we see this growth happening. The God which we profess to be our God, the God who came incarnate in Jesus Christ, self-sacrificially dying on the cross for the salvation of all people, this God is the God of transformation. Here's the thing, though, that we get kind of caught up on in the Christian life. Transformation requires some amount of death. And I don't mean literal death. I'm not calling on anybody to go through any kind of literal death. But a death to self, a death to one's old life, this kind of transformation any kind of transformation, calls some part of whatever is being transformed to forget some amount of what it once was, perhaps not forget, but to let go of, to release. And then it is possible for transformation. We have this beautiful ritual in, uh, in the life of the church. Uh, it's a ritual which the Christian church adopted from the Jewish practices of mikvah, or purification ritual. call it baptism. We here in the, we, in the United Methodist Church, we have a, a baptismal font. Uh, I, I did not grow up fully in the United Methodist Church. I, I was baptized in a non-denominational church, so I was dunked all the way under, and I flailed like a fish because I was panicking. I thought I was going to drown. Probably not a good sign during baptism, but that's what happened. But we, we in the United Methodist Church, we have a baptismal font, and we do either pouring or sprinkling. And the, the uh, process of baptism, like I said, comes from this uh, Jewish ritual of mikvah in which there was this pool-type thing in which a person to go through the ritual process of cleansing would enter into this pool and then come out. Uh, the uh, sect of Judaism called the Essenes, these are the people who ended up writing uh, or copying the sacred text of scripture that we have. Anytime they came across the name, the, the name of God, Yahweh, anytime they came across that name. Before they could write it, they would have to go through the ritual process of mikvah, dunk themselves under and come out, and then they were able to write it, because that is a sacred name. It's a sacred process. But this process then gets adopted into the practice of John the Baptist, who eventually baptizes Jesus in the Jordan River, and in doing so, however Jesus was baptized, whether dunked or sprinkled or poured over or whatever happened, maybe a wave just kind of crashed over, I'm not really sure, it's not very clear about it, although Jesus does come up out of the water in some sense. In that moment, that's what we adopt for our own practice, but we take it even a step further in acknowledging that there are two kinds of baptisms. There is baptism by water, and there is baptism by the Spirit. Now, in our tradition, we practice both at the same time, that both happen simultaneously, that, there is bab- that with baptism by water is also baptism by the Spirit, that the water is an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. In doing so, we are also recalling the very moment in which Jesus was died, buried, and resurrected. This moment of uh, in in the older church, older church, uh, the early church, but a little bit later than the early church, in this time frame, they were doing the full dunking process in which you, were, you would remember the, uh, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ all in one fluid motion. The death, you go under the burial, you're under for like a brief second, and then the resurrection and you come up out of the water. It is this moment of acknowledgement that in order to embrace transformed new life, person must die and be born again. This is the very conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus. Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a great teacher, a well-known teacher in Jesus' region of the Jewish faith, secretly comes to Jesus in the middle of the night and, 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 and asks Jesus for insight. And Jesus says, unless you are born anew, You cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And and Nicodemus is like, I don't understand that. How am I supposed to be born anew? How can anyone re-enter their mother's womb and be born again after already being born? And Jesus is like, don't be ridiculous. That's insane, Nicodemus. You can't do that. No, this birth is a spiritual birth. New life is only possible through death. A metaphorical death, mind you. A dying to self. How often do we hear that in scriptures? You must die to yourself to let go of that old life. So, the passage that we have before us is a very peculiar passage. Um, coming from the book of John, those of you who have uh, been in Bible study with me know that John is my least favorite gospel. It's just horribly frustrating, and he uses all of these metaphors, and it's not very cohesive, and it's very, uh, it's very gnostic, which just means it's very knowledge-based. It's very heady in this. It seems like Jesus is like this mystical figure that kind of floats above everybody else and is just like, hello, hello. This is yeah. It freaks me out a little bit. So, but and this is like a prime example of why it's so frustrating to me. Because look at what happens here. There's this festival that's going on, and some of uh, some of the Gentiles, the Greeks, they come to Philip, and Philip, and they say, "We we want to see Jesus." Philip says, "Okay, let's see what we can do." And then Philip goes to Andrew. Why Philip then goes to Andrew and not just straight to Jesus, I don't know. Maybe there's this hierarchy within the disciples. Maybe Philip has to check in with Andrew. Maybe it's just because they were really close, whatever. But Philip then goes and checks in with Andrew, and then Andrew and Philip go and let Jesus know, hey, there are these people here who want to see you. And Jesus completely ignores them. After they say this, Uh, whatever, verse 22, Philip went and told Andrew, then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I can only imagine that Philip and Andrew are standing there like, is that a no? Should we tell them to go away? Like, are you about to do something? I don't understand what's going on here. This is pretty, com- I would have felt kind of awkward in this situation. So no, no idea if these, uh, if these Greeks got to actually talk with Jesus because Jesus is over here doing his own thing. Whatever. Um, And then, a little bit down after he explains the whole seed thing and the whole uh, dying thing and all of that stuff, uh, Jesus says, Now my soul is troubled. Okay? And what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it is for this reason that I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And the crowd standing there heard it and said that it was thunder, and others said, an angel has spoken to him. This is another one of those moments where it's it's just like, what? What's going on? Have you ever, like, just wanted the voice of God to speak from heaven and just, like, make things very clear? Like, God, if you're, if, you're, if you're able to speak from heaven and say these things, like, that's a pretty cohesive sentence there, why don't you do it more often? You know, tell us what we're supposed to do. Uh, I think, and maybe, maybe I'm, I'm wrong, but I think the answer lies in how the people respond. This voice rings out from the heavens or from whence it, wherever it came, and, and the people hear it, and they say, that was Thunder. Okay, so even people who are hearing the direct voice of God speaking to them aren't able to even fully comprehend it. This even happens uh, whenever the Israelites are at the foot of Mount Sinai, and there's this moment we call a theophany. It's like an epiphany, but instead of with an idea, it's with God, a theophany. Uh, God actually ends up revealing God's self to the people and speaks out across the mountain And it's like thunder, and the people are petrified, and they're terrified. And after God speaks, they come up to Moses and say, don't let that happen again. That was horrifying. Do not let God speak to us like that again. Instead, you be our mediator and go between. So I think that whole, this is, I'm digressing way too far, but I think that the whole wanting God to speak to us from the heavens doesn't really work out that way because human beings aren't really prepared for it these people even heard God speak and they don't even know what's going on. The Israelites heard God speak and they were just terrified of it and didn't want it to happen again. But anyway, so, so yeah, this, this whole passage, things are, are, are strange. And then Jesus says, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Like, Jesus, what, what sake? They didn't even understand what happened. But okay, very good. And Jesus is over here just kind of like hovering above everybody. Like Yes, very good, very good. And then goes on to say, now is the judgment of the world, now the ruler of this people will be driven out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to indicate the kind of death that he was to die. We've been in this conversation for a couple of weeks now through the season of Lent about this notion of what we call social holiness. This is uh, from John Wesley, the founder of modern-day Methodism, who, uh, in a critique of the mystics of the time, ended up saying, there is no holiness but social holiness. This notion that all holiness must take into consideration the social dynamic, the community. And what is holiness? But to be set apart, to to be wholly unique, to be set aside for a particular purpose, to be different from that which is everything else. And so as we're talking about social holiness, what we are inevitably talking about is becoming more than I am. As I am now, I am flawed, imperfect, broken. I make mistakes like a lot. It's really hard to be a pastor because people expect you to be perfect and I make like all kinds of mistakes. I am an imperfect human being. And holiness calls us to become more than I am, more than you are, more than we are. Holiness calls us to be more like God, exemplified in Christ. This embodiment of love, this entity thriving for the community, And Jesus here lets us know probably the hardest truth about the path toward holiness, and that is that in order to become holy, in order to become more than I am, more than you are, more than we are, it requires a little bit of dying, a little bit of losing myself my life, my selfish desires and ambitions, the things that I cling to that are only for me. In the process of saying all of this, Jesus says in verse 25, those who love their life lose it, and those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Holiness requires letting go who we are, who we were, to become more like Christ, a person, the exemplification of perfection and holiness, who was focused on the people, though for whatever reason in this story, not so much the Greek people who are trying to talk to him. once again, I, the Gospel of John is just very frustrating. Social holiness is by nature less about one grain and more about much fruit. Jesus says, Very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. How beneficial is a single grain? It's actually very frustrating to have just a single grain because you're like, I need more of this grain to do anything with. If you're making bread, you can't do it with one grain. If you're doing anything with one grain, it's, it's like entirely useless other than for planting. But much fruit, that we can work with. Social holiness is less about one grain and more about much fruit. And so this whole concept of being made holy, this whole notion of being transformed, this, everything that we're talking about, about death and being resurrected into new life, This is all about acknowledging that I, as I am, am not as useful, not as productive, not as fruitful as if I become much more. Like the grain, which goes into the soil, which dies, which then becomes, sure, over time, sure, with much nurturing, a fruitful plant. I'm just going to remain a single grain. This is the notion of social holiness, that it's about more than just one grain. And I wish I had like a little grain. I should have gone out and found one. More than just about one little grain here. It's about much fruit, the flourishing of life. This is the calling to which we have been called. And so my challenge for us this week is to acknowledge one more crucial concept when it comes to social holiness, is that purpose for which we are made holy. Jesus, as he acknowledges that the time has come for his own death and suffering and burial and inevitable resurrection. So the time has come for that, he says, And what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it is for this reason that I have come to this hour. Rather, Father, glorify your name. That the process of dying and being resurrected to new life, of bearing much fruit, is about glorifying the name of God not ours. That, that right there is the gospel message in, well, probably longer than I should have been talking. And so, I hope that you will take this challenge with you this week, to glorify God's name, not ours. Not mine, not yours, but God's name in all that we do. In each piece of fruit that we bear, let it be to glorify God's name. Our very death, resurrection, and new life, let it be to glorify God, not ourselves. This is about more than just one grain.
0: It's about much fruit. Let us pray.